Getting sober requires a lot more than mind over matter, a lot more than willpower. It's about leveraging the support around you. People in recovery typically need a mix of medical help, emotional support, and changes in lifestyle to manage their addiction, not just mental determination. As both a therapist and someone embracing the recovery lifestyle, there's one tool I always recommend to people needing extra accountability, Soberlink. Soberlink is a high-tech breath analyzer system designed to help you get and stay sober. And here's why I love it. You'll test the same day every day, eliminating testing anxiety. Friends and family receive instant test results, helping you rebuild trust and preventing relapse. Accountability is a part of that, and it's something to really be embraced. Devices have built-in facial recognition, so your support circle knows you're testing, and tamper-resistant sensors flag any attempts at trying to beat the system, so your sobriety is never questioned. So let 2024 be your best year yet. Visit Soberlink.com forward slash T-A-M to sign up and receive $50 off your device. That's Soberlink.com forward slash T-A-M. And let accountability be your guide. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Addicted Mind podcast. Today, I'm doing things a little differently and sharing with you a preview of another podcast I enjoy and think you will too. It's called A Slight Change of Plans. On A Slight Change of Plans, Dr. Maya Shunker, a cognitive scientist who is an expert on human behaviors, examines who we are and who we become in the face of big change. Maya has intimate conversations with people who have faced incredible transformations, people like Casey Musgrave, Amanda Knox, as well as everyday inspirations like Richard Harris, an Australian doctor who rescued a boy's soccer team trapped deep inside a cave in Thailand. In this preview, Maya sits down with four-time Grammy-winning musician Jason Isbell. Hailed as one of the best singer-songwriters of his generation, Jason seems to have it all, but that wasn't always the case. His early career was plagued by addiction, and it's something that shows up time and time again in his music, which you'll hear when he plays a few special song clips in this episode. He joins Maya to talk about how getting sober allowed him to re-examine aspects of his personality that he once saw as his greatest weakness. You'll find Maya and Jason's conversation to be relatable, and I hope you enjoy it as much as I did. You can hear more from A Slight Change of Plans wherever you get your podcasts. Enjoy. It seems to me like there were just unresolved issues from my childhood that took me from a user to an abuser as far as drugs and alcohol went. And, you know, I feel like there was a part of me in my 20s that was saying, okay, let's see what happens. You know, let's just see what happens when you do those things. That's Jason Isbell, a musician heralded by critics as one of the leading singer-songwriters of our time. Jason's won four Grammy Awards. You may have heard his hit song, Cover Me Up, from his blockbuster album, Southeastern. Over the years, Jason has been open about his struggles with alcohol and drugs and what it's taken for him to become sober. His recovery has involved revisiting some core assumptions about who he was then and who he is today. And one way he gained a better understanding of himself is through his music. There was a huge shift in the reason I wrote songs around that period of time. Up until that point, I had been writing for an external audience. Um, 
you know, this is my family. This is my father. This is the place where I grew up. But then I sort of, you know, unconsciously started writing songs where I was looking at myself and I was trying to make some sort of estimation of who I was and if I was doing okay. On today's show, why Jason Isbell believes you don't have to reject your past in order to live a better future. I'm Maya Shunker, and this is A Slight Change of Plans, a show about who we are and who we become in the face of a big change. I love Jason Isbell's music, not only because he writes beautiful, stirring melodies, but because of how he approaches storytelling. He captures life's challenges, like navigating addiction and recovery, in their full complexity. Jason and I began our conversation by talking about his childhood and musical influences. He grew up in Alabama and was exposed to a wide range of music from an early age. We're talking gospel, bluegrass, and country. His grandfather, a Pentecostal preacher, played instruments like the banjo and guitar and would often invite Jason to join him. And the thing that really got me hooked from early on, if I would play rhythm guitar for him, he would play like a lead instrument like mandolin or banjo or fiddle. And if I would make it through a couple of hours of playing rhythm guitar, he would reward me by laying the guitar in his lap and tuning it to an open tuning and playing blues music with his pocket knife. He would he would use his pocket knife as a slide. And that was my reward. And that was the thing that I really loved the most. So you continue playing the guitar well into your teenage years. And there's this one day where you're waiting tables at a at a local restaurant and a coworker asks if you'd like to open for him at an upcoming show at, at a at a coffee shop. And he says to you that you're going to need to perform 30 minutes of original music the following day. So the next day, mm-hmm. which you don't actually have. Right. <laughs> uh, but what was your response? Yeah, I told him, I, I, that's no problem. I got all kinds of songs. Easy, you know. <laughs> and then I thought, I got to go home and write some songs. Uh, so that's what I did. I sat up all night. I remember uh, I was drinking Gatorade and Everclear and... Uh, I stayed up and wrote like half an hour's worth of songs. I remember just flipping back and forth through the notebook, adding something here, go back, add something here, take something out here, uh, and then played it all back and like looked at my watch and saw, okay, that's about 30 minutes, so that'll do. And, uh, you know, I wrote all those at once just as quickly as I could. And, And that wound up being the first songs of mine that anybody heard. And it was also kind of, I think when you're working on that kind of a deadline or when you're just in this sort of like manic output period, sometimes it turns off the critic in your brain, you know, because you don't have time to judge what you're doing. You're just being creative. So there's something I think beneficial to that sometimes. You know, you say it so nonchalantly, Jason. So matter of fact, like, yeah, so I told him, oh yeah, that's no problem. I got it. But (laughs) what, what gave you the confidence in that moment to say, yeah, I'm going to be able to generate 30 minutes of original music tonight. Like, did you always have this feeling that there was that there was so much you wanted to say? Yes. I don't know if you have noticed this, but I'm a white man. <laughs> um, 
And that is what gave me that confidence. <laughs> I love that. Yeah, sorry, I'm completely unfamiliar with what you're describing. You can't, it may be pixelated here, but I, I am a white man. Um, the confidence is built in. You know, if I don't have the confidence, it's my own damn fault. Um, but also, I was lucky enough to have a family who had encouraged me and my creative pursuits and... Um, so I thought, well, what's the worst that can happen? You know, I don't write 30 minutes worth of good songs and the 10 people in the coffee shop don't like what I'm doing. Fine, I can handle that. And, and the reason I felt that way is because I knew there were people who cared about me in the world. And also I knew that any amount of embarrassment that I felt would go away soon because I would have other opportunities just because of my station in life. You know, I didn't have any money at the time. My parents didn't have any money and their parents didn't have any money. But uh, we had a lot of encouragement and we had very little resistance. And I did feel sort of cushioned in a certain way. Like, you know, and this is not going to end terribly. Nobody's going to beat me up over this. I'm just going to see what I can do. Yeah. And you obviously believe that you had creative potential, right? I mean, it's not enough to just feel cushioned, right? You need to believe that, you know, fundamentally that you, you have what it takes to write. Yes. I'm coming at this from, from someone who played music for a long time, but my composition <laughs> sucked. And so I, you know, I don't want to understate how that's a very distinct skill set that one needs to cultivate, mm -hmm. but it seems like it came rather naturally for you. I think so. And I don't know why exactly. I mean, at the root of it, I don't know why. You know, I didn't have a lot of friends that would come over and play guitar with me or anything like that. Mostly, I was just sitting alone in my room with a guitar playing and making sounds. And I think out of that and then the fact that I really liked to read, you know, my mom started me reading really early and I, and I really enjoyed that. I think that combination is sort of what led me to becoming a songwriter. Um, so I'd love to focus on... Shortly after this this coffee gig, you end up joining the band, the Drive-By Truckers, and you hit the road for a fairly intense life of touring, right? I mean, you had yeah. hundreds of shows a year. What, what was that transition like for you? Um, it was a very intense touring life. I mean, we were always gone, you know, and we were always in a van and we were sleeping on people's floors. And if we got a hotel, we would get one room and all of us would sleep in the one room. But most of the time uh, we were staying with friends for that first year or so. Uh, so there was not a lot of rest. There was a whole lot of excitement um, because I was 21 years old and, and playing music for people. And the people in the audience were extremely happy to be there and it was it, you know the the venues were small but the emotions were big you know it was it was a rock and roll show and it was very loud and we were just the band was just at that point where things start happening you know where you i call it the where did, where the hell did all these people come from moment you know where you've been touring and playing and touring and playing and then all of a sudden there are people who are in the parking lot who know they're not going to get into the show because it's sold out, but they're still staying in the parking lot just to hear it through the doors or through the windows. But as far as like the experience that I was having, you know, it was really exciting because I'd, I'd never been anywhere. I didn't notice so much how difficult it was physically because, yeah, it was I don't know if I could handle it now. I probably couldn't do it now. Yeah. 
at some point you start to drink excessively and, and you end up doing drugs? Yeah, I wanted to see what that was like, you know, just what it felt like to do those drugs or to get mm. that drunk or, you know, I, I I call it the slingshot effect because in the small towns, when you're raising a sheltered kid, you're kind of slowly pulling the slingshot back for 18 years and then all of a sudden you let it go and I had lived in such a mundane existence in, in such a uh, cloistered kind of place that when I got out and saw the world, I wanted to take everything in, you know, metaphorically and literally. And uh, also, yeah, the physical aspects of it had a lot to do with it. I mean, you know, you ride six or eight hours in a van and then you get out and you have to be in a good mood and, uh, you know, get up on stage and perform and then load all your stuff back into the van and go sleep for three or four hours on somebody's floor and then get up and do it all again about 300 times a year. So, yeah, that that definitely had a, a part to play. But I think really now that I've got some hindsight, it seems to me like there were just unresolved issues from my childhood that kept it from being recreational, you know, and that took me from a user to an abuser as far as drugs and alcohol went. And and what do you think some of those unresolved childhood issues were? Um, you know, my parents were very young when I was born. Um, my mom was uh, 17. My dad was 19. And they did a good job. They were very present in my life and uh, attentive. But still, you know, with parents that young... Nobody knows what the hell they're doing. And there was a lot of religious guilt and a lot of my dad's family, the Pentecostal side of the family, they were it was pretty close to a cult, uh, very mm. much fundamentalist religious sect, um, to put it politely. And so they were very close to their family. They were, you know, very loving, very caring people, but also for a kid you know, growing up in this situation, you know, when I was five, six, seven years old, I, I was because because out of love, they thought that that was the, the way they could love me the best. You know, I was put in a situation where, you know, that sort of conservative Christian viewpoint was bored into my brain. Mm. And uh, I don't know if this was voluntary on their part, but made to feel like anything outside of that uh, structure was a horrible transgression. And so I was, you know, a little kid walking around feeling all this guilt and all this shame and God's going to get mad at me and send me to hell mm -hmm. and, you know, uh, uh, the vengeful God and the angry God. And and that, that was pretty heavy. That was a pretty heavy thing. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I guess you felt it was so imprinted that even when you're a twenty-something touring, mm -hmm. you're you're still feeling some of those feelings of guilt and shame. Yes, and it was one of those things that sort of cycled. I feel like there was a part of me in my twenties that was saying, "Okay, let's see what happens. Let's see what happens if you do all these things that you weren't supposed to be doing, that you were told that you would go to hell for. Let's just see what happens when you do those things, because I'm the kind of person who, if I'm afraid of something, my instinct is to do it immediately, huh. you know, uh, to conquer that fear. And uh, none of those were healthy responses. So they all just kind of kept the snowball got bigger and bigger until finally I had no 
control over my life. I mean, it it got so bad at a certain point that your bandmates, you know, they recognize you have a problem. They try to get you to go to rehab and and you end up refusing. Um, tell me more about how bad it was. Like, how was that expressing itself? What kind of effects were you having on others? You know, I was drinking a, about a fifth a day, about a fifth of Jack Daniels a day. So a big old glass bottle of it, uh, you know, what you would buy at the store that should last you for a couple months. I was drinking one of those every day. And, uh, you know, if there were drugs around, I would do the drugs. Um, you know, everything that I did was essentially in service of drinking more because that was mm-hmm. the thing that that worked for me, that, that hooked me. Um, and... You know, most of the time, I wasn't angry, uh, especially not at first, not for the first few years of drinking that heavily. I was a funny, happy drunk, and then it it just started shifting, you know, when you pile those layers of exhaustion on top of each other and takes more and more alcohol to get what you feel like is the same buzz that you used to get, you know, you start to get more angry and more aggressive, and and. You know, I wasn't like a physically aggressive person, but I can be emotionally and psychologically aggressive in a way that is very vicious and very harmful. I was just a mean bastard. I would say mean things to people and it would hurt their feelings. And, uh, you know, I wasn't loyal to my first wife. I broke some promises. And uh, the bottom line, you know, you don't do that. You don't break promises. And... um and I don't want to say this is because I was an addict, because it wasn't. The truth is it wasn't. It just, the addiction just gave me uh, something else to blame for it. So, you know, addiction was a, a scapegoat for me because it's so easy to say, well, I did those things because I'm drunk. People do it all the time now still in these half-assed fake apologies online, you know. But uh, there's a line in one of the old Drive-By Trucker songs that my friend Mike Cooley wrote, he says, uh, the, the liquor don't make you do the thing, it just lets you. And huh. I always loved that line. I love that. I thought, it just allows you to be the asshole that you wanted to be. <laughs> um, so, you know, you eventually leave the band. I mean, folks ask you to leave for a break and then it becomes yeah. a lo- extended break and um, and you keep drinking, right? I mean, yeah. it doesn't it doesn't immediately stop the problem. And I'm wondering what finally led you to acknowledge that you had a problem and that, that you actually wanted to make changes? You know, um, I fell in love with somebody who had her shit together. Mm. And I did not think that she was going to stick around unless I got my shit together. And so I got sober and I wrote letters from rehab and I and I begged and I pleaded and I gave her proof that I wasn't going to fall back into my old ways and I started doing the work and I started going to therapy and you know now 10 years later I'm still sober and and I'm much more effective as a person and this situation is complicated for me now because what I did to her at that point I would not do to someone now you know I put a lot of weight a lot of pressure and a lot of responsibility for my own redemption, for lack of a better word, on to another person. And in my selfish brain, it looked like I have to do whatever it takes 
to win the heart of this person that I'm in love with. And now I see that that was not a fair thing. But at the time, it looked like a love story to me. Yeah. Were you worried at the time or, or maybe it didn't hit you because, again, you were in the throes of, of love, but that a dependency was forming. And so there was a fragility to your sobriety journey because the minute your wife, Amanda, left the scene, maybe you would go back to your old ways. Like it, your your journey was inextricably linked to her existence and you're wanting her love, right? Right, right. At first, I think I felt like they were linked in that way. But after just a few months, um, there were other rewards, mm. you know, and it became for me. Um, you know, you might get a different answer to that question if you asked her. Yeah. And that's part of what I did to her that was not fair. But um, I would never link somebody else to the responsibility of my survival or my growth as an individual. Like, I would never do that. But I don't think I even knew what codependent meant 10 years ago. I don't think I'd even gotten far enough to to begin to understand that. I was just a, a mess, you know. Your song Live Oak alludes to your concerns that in giving up alcohol and drugs, it wouldn't just be the bad stuff that left you, that there might be some good stuff too that you lost right. in the process. Um, do you mind singing some of the opening of that song for us and then sharing more about, about the nature of this worry? Sure. Yeah, no problem. Let me get my guitar. Oh, sure. Um, and I'll... Sounds okay? Yeah, sounds great. All right. There's a man who walks beside me. He is who I used to be. I wonder if she sees him and confuses him with me. And I wonder who she's pining for on nights I'm not around. Could it be the man who did the things I'm living down? So there's the intro of that song. Um, I think that's probably enough to to explain what we're talking about. But yeah, so it really is kind of a, a murder ballad about this guy who's trying to redeem himself after being an outlaw uh in sometime in the deep past and uh you know he doesn't succeed um and then he 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 wonders if um you know what version of himself was really the better version i think for me as time passed i came to terms with the idea that there were good things and bad things about the person that I used to be. Um, mm. But at first it was really hard to do because there was a, a danger. At every turn, I was looking for ways to keep myself from backsliding. So I didn't want to romanticize what my life had been. For years after getting sober, um, I just looked at it with this, that was bad and this is good uh, sort of you know, binary judgment there. Yeah. And would that make you hesitant to revisit your past in your music? Yes. That need to create psychological distance between you and your former former self? Yes. Or it would reduce the work to something less complex than it should have been. You know, oh, because you were you were painting a very simplistic model of past Jason. Exactly. Past Jason was just awful. The worst. Yes, 
this is what I used to be. Doesn't mm. that suck? Isn't that terrible? Aren't we all glad I'm not that anymore? Yeah, I see. Reductionist. <laughs> yes, yes. And uh, and that itself is a lie, you know, is, is a revisionist personal history in the way that it, it's just not even true anymore. So, you know, and I understand all of the past is a concept and it's all filtered through the way we process information. However, I think part of the, the creative journey and the creative struggle is to try to see how close we can get, try to remove our own processing systems from the past and, and see it as clearly as possible. And that took a long time. That took a really long time for me. We'll hear more from Jason about his life in recovery after the break. We'll be back in a moment with a slight change of plans. What have you realized, Jason, has stayed intact um, about you through your transition from from alcoholic to someone, you know, who is now 10 years sober? And I think part of my question is you were concerned at one point, like, did they really like that guy, <laughs> like the old, you know, oh. the, the drunk Jason? And I'm wondering, you know, as you straddled these two identities, right, these two very distinct psychological states, if you realize now that there are some fundamental parts of you that were there then and are there now that the people around you in your life really cherish. Yes, all of it is still there. It's all still there. That was me, and this is me. Only now he gets to make more decisions, you know, rather than look up and think, how did I wind up here, you know? And I don't always make the right decision, you know. I like to think my average is going up as time goes on, but I'm just able to make the decision because I don't have to choose to to get another drink or or to find whatever drug I was doing or to be around uh, people because they have access to that or because they think it's okay for me to behave that way. Like I just simply get to make the choices for myself, like the choice to be loyal to my wife and to my family. I get to make that choice, you know? Yeah. And, uh, what time I go to bed, what time I get up in the morning, you know, how much time I devote to my art every day. These are things that I get to decide for myself now. Yeah. I, I'd love to dig into the role songwriting has played in your sobriety because, you know, it strikes me that as a songwriter, you're kind of getting this constant pulse of where you're at emotionally, right? Based on Based on what you're expressing in your music or what you're finding yourself incapable of expressing, right? You're getting signals in both directions. And and I think very few of us have a profession that serves as a mirror of sorts, that, that's constantly reflecting our emotional states back to us. Well, there was a huge shift in the reason I wrote songs around that period of time. So when I got sober, I was very, you know, raw, like like emotionally sunburned, you know. Up until that point, I had been writing for an external audience. I had really been writing songs to show people what my experience was. You know, this is my family. This is my father. This is the place where I grew up. But then I sort of, you know, unconsciously started writing songs, you know, where I was looking at myself and I was trying to make some sort of estimation of who I was and if I was doing okay. Mm. Yeah. Um, 
And that shift happened right then. And, you know, I hate the term like confessional songwriter because I think that's very limiting and sort of derogatory. But I think I went from trying to communicate with the outside world to trying to communicate with myself and trying to reflect on myself and understand myself. Once I started doing that, that became very addictive in itself, you know, and the reward of that was such that, that I wanted to continue to do it. And so it turned off the part of my brain that is judging and just opened up the part of my brain that is curious. And it just flew out, you know, for, for a couple albums after that, it just flew out. It kind of still mm, does. Mm. Um, there's another song on one of your albums called It Gets Easier and you sing, you know, it gets easier, but it never gets easy. First of all, I think that resonates with so many people, not even just those navigating addiction, but just navigating life (laughs) and the challenges of life. I I think that I found so much resonance in in those lyrics. And, you know, I think this touches upon some of the themes that we've already talked about, which is about, you know, villainizing past self and and maybe glorifying present self because you're trying to create as much distance as possible between those two, right? I mean, it's easy to tell yourself that Oh, I fixed it. You know, it's fixed. It's solved to go on that kind of cruise control and think, well, I haven't had a drink today, so I can't hurt anybody too bad or I can't do anything too terrible. And, you know, that can stunt your growth as an adult by saying this one big issue, like like it's a version of romanticizing addiction and not necessarily in a positive way. But if you look at it as this huge, all-encompassing beast that's in control of your life completely, Well, then, you know, that means the inverse of that must also be true. You know, so you assume that, like, if addiction is this big, huge monster that has been in charge of your whole life, then once you've conquered that, quote unquote, you assume that the inverse is also true, that, you know, now I've solved my problem. And as we all know, it is never as simple as I have one problem. Yeah. Having gone through, you know, a very arduous time when you were, you know, so often under the influence and then and then navigating sobriety. What's the biggest thing you learned about yourself? What's the biggest thing that changed in terms of your self-perception, your understanding of who you are? When I got sober, I had no idea how far I was from actually being a satisfied and uh, contributing member of society. I thought that, you know, I've got a job. I entertain people. I'm able to get in the van and ride to these shows and play these shows. People like me. I'm funny. I have enough money to pay my bills. You know, I'm doing great. I'm doing a good job, you know, but I had no clue how many millions of miles away I was from being a a satisfied and and self-actualized person, how much more I had to learn about myself 
because I had just been putting that off for so long and so aggressively stunting my own growth because it hurt so much to learn that I wasn't perfect. And as a flip side to that, I didn't realize how much I would really enjoy the process of learning those things. I mean, going to therapy, you know, and also just searching on my own, going into every situation thinking, how do I handle this as somebody who knows myself and and loves myself? And, you know, that process has been really challenging in the best possible way for me. And it makes me feel like at the end of every day, I, I have attempted to make myself better. Therefore, I have attempted to make the world better. It's so interesting what I'm hearing. And this is reminding me of something you said early in the interview is that the very same personality trait that leads you to fear something then immediately want to do it like you did with alcohol. So the thing that got you to become an alcoholic, which is you feared that whole scene and then you jumped right in, is maybe the very same instinct that led you to try and reach self-actualization, which is, I imagine it, you were filled with fear. Like, what will I discover if I go deep? What will I discover if I open this brain of mine and and try and probe Maybe I'll just jump right in. Yeah. Like, is that kind of a similar pattern that you have that actually just conferred benefits in this case? Yeah, I think it's the exact same thing. Um, I do. I think that's a I don't know if anybody's made that. I don't think anybody's made that point to me before. Uh, so I appreciate that. But it is it is the same exact thing. And I think some of us are the kind of people who you know, stand at the edge of Niagara Falls and think, I wonder what would happen if I jumped in. And I don't do that, you know, so there's a few of us are the kind of people who do jump in. That's you don't want to be that kind either. Um, and there's I don't even us, for what it's worth, I don't even go to the edge of the thing to look over. I'm like, yeah. behind the guardrails, some, you know, 50, 100 <laughs> feet away. All right. That's probably the, <laughs> that's probably the healthiest way to handle the whole situation. Like somebody go take a picture of that and bring it back mm -hmm. and show it to me. I'll just I'll just Google it. Niagara Falls image. OK, great. Yeah. Done. I'll get a T-shirt. I was there. <laughs> But some of us have to go right up to the edge, you know, and I am that person. I have to go right up to the edge. And um, I've always been that person, and that's just how I am. And so, you know, I, I just I like to test all those boundaries. And, you know, luckily there are healthy ways for an artist to do that. I mean, that's probably why I'm an artist, you know. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I love when... I love when we can reinterpret what we initially code in our lives as being liabilities and, and weaknesses. And then you start to think, well, what are the flip sides of it? Like, what are the benefits? And it, it seems like in your case, Jason, that it would have been so easy to say, oh, I have this really frustrating habit where when I fear something, I jump right in and I can't wait to just rid myself of that instinct. And yet here you are in a later stage of your life learning that there's there's an upside and that when you channel some of those very same instincts in the right direction um you can you can have beautiful changes that emerge right yeah yeah no i love that um i'm wondering if you can close us out with um the song cover me up which is a beautiful Ooh. ode to your to your wife amanda and yeah i would love <laughs> to say that um that this is purely because it's consonant with the show's theme but the reality is that 
I'm not going to not take advantage of the fact that I can get serenaded by Jason Isbell. <laughs> and so all you slight changers listening, this is also a selfish desire of mine, That's which is to right. hear one of my favorite songs sung by one of my well, favorite musicians. <laughs> all right. I will do my best. Let me put my microphone a little closer and I'll tune the guitar here. Let me take one of my earbuds out. Can you still hear me? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, but it's the end of the day and my voice is warmed up and I can, but I'll do it now in D. Thanks for listening. Join me next week when I talk with Nora McInerney, host of the podcast, Terrible, Thanks for Asking. Nora lost her husband to brain cancer in 2014, and in the months and years following his death, Nora found comfort and meaning in helping others navigate their grief. People started to see her as a grief doula of sorts. Over time, these responsibilities began to mount, and Nora felt overwhelmed, but she didn't think she had a way out. Are you allowed to quit anything? Winners never quit. Quitters never win. Although, was I going to win the Best Widow Award? I don't know. I felt, I think, in a lot of ways, like I had inadvertently built this identity that had become a cage for me. A Slight Change of Plans is created, written, and executive produced by me, Maya Shunker. The Slight Change family includes our senior producer, Tyler Green, our producer and fact checker, Emily Rostek, our editors, Kate Parkinson Morgan and Jen Guerra, and our sound engineers, Ben Tolliday and Andrew Bastola. Luis Guerra wrote our delightful theme song, and Ginger Smith helped arrange the vocals. A Slight Change of Plans is a production of Pushkin Industries, so big thanks to everyone there. And of course, a very special thanks to Jimmy Lee. You can follow A Slight Change of Plans on Instagram at Dr. Maya Shunker. See you next week.
Was it good? Was it okay? Oh my God, it was beautiful. Okay, thank you. Life is made, everyone. Life is made. <laughs> That's awesome. Well, thank you. All right, everyone. That was a preview of a slight change of plans from Pushkin Industries. Hear more from a slight change of plans wherever you get your podcast. Have a wonderful day. And thank you for listening to The Addicted Mind. Oh, hey, it's Erin. And I'm Michaela, and we're the hosts of the Two Sober Girls podcast, and we are on a mission to spill the wild truth about sobriety. Forget the rosé all day cliche. Sobriety is flipping amazing. Absolutely. It's not just about quitting the drink. It's a gift you give yourself and your loved ones. So what are you waiting for? Break up with that old toxic relationship with alcohol and let us show you the possibilities. And here's the thing. Everything your precious heart desires becomes way easier without the influence of alcohol. We're not just two sober girls. We're also wellness coaches. We're here to show you how to optimize health, lifestyle, and beauty, feel sexy and alive as F. So stay tuned because we're rolling out new episodes every Monday, wherever you get your podcasts and trust us. They have your name written all over them. We can't wait to share the magic of sobriety and wellness with you. Subscribe to Two Sober Girls Podcast today and come follow us on Instagram for behind the scenes action and send us a DM. We can't wait to meet you.